Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book One, Plan B Revised. Chapter 11, Escape into the Void. Martin pulled at the carjacker's jacket, thinking that he was off balance, leaning into the shed. His flash of a mental plan was that the man would fall down inside the shed and they could run out. It was not a very good plan. The man didn't fall in. He was holding on to the door jamb with one hand. As soon as Martin realized this, he did the opposite. His new, half-thought-out plan was that the man, braced so he wouldn't fall in, might not be situated to resist a push outward. Martin lunged into the carjacker, throwing his shoulder into the man's chest. Martin was right that time. The two of them tumbled out of the shed and onto the ground. Martin was thinking that if the man had a gun, it would be harder to use if his target was grappling with him. Martin concentrated on trying to hold the man's wrists. If he had a knife, Martin would at least have a little control. Martin got a quick glance at one of the carjacker's hands as they rolled in the grass. One hand had a wad of Martin's jacket in it. No knife. The other, however, did hold a small knife with a wide curved blade. The carjacker was trying to get on top of Martin, but Martin kept twisting. He had no plan other than to never let go of the knife hand's wrist and to avoid letting his attacker get any kind of position of leverage. He wished he had a better plan. The carjacker pushed himself out of Martin's grip and slashed across Martin's belly with the knife. He looked down for a second, as if expecting to see blood or guts. Martin did, too. But there was nothing. A loud clang rang out. The man fell forward onto Martin, who quickly rolled out from under him. Susan stood behind them, holding a small spade like a batter at home plate. When she saw the man fall, she dropped the shovel and covered her mouth, surprised at what she had done. Martin scrambled to his feet and snatched up the spade. As the carjacker was shaking his head and pushing up onto his arms, Martin gave it his best swinging for the fence's swing. The flat of the spade caught the man behind the ear. The man fell flat on his face. Let's get out of here, Martin said. He grabbed up the man's knife and ran back to the shed for the roller bag. Susan still had on his backpack. They ran across the small backyard. Martin pulled the roller bag up into his arms and ran through the brush as best he could. Susan followed him into the woods. Pushing left, right, ducking under, whichever way he had to move through the understory as quickly as he could, the roller bag was an awkward and bulky load to push through the brush. Martin wanted to put as much distance between themselves and the carjackers as he could before the man came to. To the left, the trees were thinner, the woods brighter. A clearing might be easier going. He veered left. The ground got soft. His sneakers sank into the dark mud. Swamp. The clearing was a pond. Martin ran back to the right, deeper into the pine and oak woods. Amid all of the thrash and crash of themselves running through the leaves, Martin could hear that the carjacker was up. Hey! he shouted groggily. Hey, they're back here! Hey! The other man's voice was indistinct. Back here! Over here! the first one shouted. They ran in dim woods! Come on! Martin could hear the carjackers crashing through the brush, too. He thought that the men were likely to catch up with them. He resolved to veer off and lead them away. He would tell Susan to go straight, 
Hopefully, he could buy some time for her to escape. He turned to tell Susan about his plan, but he never got a word out. He fell instantly and hard. There was no time to put his hands out to break his fall. The impact knocked the breath out of him. He had mud in his mouth. Martin had fallen into the depression left over from where a tree's roots had been when the tree had blown over many years ago. The former root ball had decayed down to a leaf-covered mound beside the pit. The tree itself was little more than a raised line of moss in the leaf litter. This way, shouted one of the men. Martin didn't have the breath to leap up and run. A quick glance around showed that the understory was too sparse or layered to conceal them if they ran. The ground was fairly flat. The pit might be just what they needed to disappear. Susan was trying to help Martin up, but he flailed off her help. No, get down in here. They won't see us, he whispered hoarsely. Susan crouched down and pulled the roller bag that Martin had dropped. No, lower. You have to lie down, like me, but not in the water. Make yourself as flat as you can. Keep your head down. Be very quiet. We need to disappear. Martin pushed himself up the sloped bank of the pit, to where he could see just with one eye over the leaf litter and under the spindly scrub of the understory. He rubbed the mud from his chin and neck up around his eyes, nose, and forehead. He put a handful of leaves on his head and laid dead still. "'Are you sure?' shouted one of the men. "'I don't see him anywhere. They were right up there. I saw him running.' "'Well, they ain't there now.' "'Shh,' said the first man. "'I think they're trying to hide.' We'd hear something if they were still running. Martin could make out the legs of two men through the understory. They were roughly twenty yards away. The two stood motionless for a long time, listening. In the limited visibility of the forest, this was an audio game. Martin intended for them to hear nothing. When the men lost patience, one of them gestured to the other to spread out and search very slowly. They were slow, but not particularly stealthy. One of them headed to the right, toward the swampy pond, getting farther away. The other one advanced slowly, stooping down frequently to peer beneath the understory and behind trees. Martin laid completely motionless. His leaf-covered head would be just another small bump in the leaf litter. The nearer man slowly zigzagged to the left of the pit, checking behind the bigger trees. His cohort called out in a pointless half-whisper, Nothing over here. The man near the pit backtracked to where they had split up. He waved the other man on to join him. We can't let him get away, said one. They saw us, and I want to get even for that crack on the head they gave me. They'll pay for that big time. Whatever, but we need to get moving. They couldn't have gotten away that fast. You go get the car and ditch those bodies. I'm staying right here. they got to move sometime. And when they do, Susan whispered very softly without moving her head, What do we do? Martin shushed her softly. We wait, lay totally still. We can't make a sound. Eventually, the second carjacker returned. Couldn't find one of them. The car's in the street. Come on, let's get out of here. Shh, I'm still listening. They can't have gotten away. They gotta be out there. Man, let it go. We got more important stuff to do than look for those two. In the distance, far to the right, a branch cracked and something fell into the brush. 
Martin sometimes heard spontaneous noises like that in his own woods. It could have been a dead branch finally letting go, or a clumsy squirrel knocking something loose. Martin was often curious what such spontaneous forest noises really were, but this time he didn't care. He was delighted. "'Ha! Told you!' shouted the waiting man. "'I knew they couldn't stay quiet forever. That way, fast!' The two carjackers ran through the woods toward the sound. Martin was very thankful that the woods sometimes made its own noise. "'Ha! I found a footprint. They must be on the other side of this pond,' shouted one. "'I'll go around this way. You go that way. We got em now.' They crashed farther away, sounding like a pair of charging moose. "'Now,' said Martin quickly, "'while they're going that way and making so much noise, let's go the opposite direction as quietly as we can.' He finally dared turn his head to see her. She had wide, frightened eyes, but nodded. She crawled out of the pit and began to take a few furtive steps away. Psst, Martin hissed. Your bag. Oh, leave it. We can, we can go faster without it, she whispered impatiently. Yeah, but if they come back looking around here and find it, they'll know we weren't over there and start looking in the right direction. Oh, jeez, she gasped. Martin took the wheel's end. She took the handle. They hurried as quickly as they could, crouched as low as they could. Martin stopped periodically to listen. The carjackers' voices still carried, as did their plowing through the brush on the other side of the pond. They didn't sound like they were getting closer. As Martin and Susan traveled deeper into the woods, Martin was mindful not to push through the twigs and dead branches that would leave an obvious trail. He remembered seeing deer or turkey scrapes in the woods and looked back to see what sort of tracks he and Susan might be making in the leaf and needle litter. Martin did not want to be leaving an obvious trail for the carjackers to follow. "'Be careful as you walk,' he whispered back. "'Try only to step on the leaves, not to kick them as you walk.' "'I have been. It makes less noise.' "'Good, good. We have to avoid leaving broken twigs and branches, too.' If either of those guys had done any hunting, they might be able to see traces and follow us. Susan looked behind her and then began stepping with more deliberate care. Martin had to take some convoluted courses to steer them around denser brush or tangled branches. Martin stopped to listen. More faint crashing of branches could be heard in the distance. The carjackers were still on the other side of the pond. They sound like they're farther away now. Maybe they think we went back to the road, or maybe they're just going to go back to the car they stole. I can't believe it, Susan exclaimed in a harsh whisper. Those guys killed that old couple, and maybe Kevin, too. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, whispered Martin. Regardless, they sure don't want us around to tell about it. I know, I've never been so scared. Let's keep going a little further, then listen some more. They don't seem to be coming this way at all. That's good. I feel a little better just being this much farther away from them. Me too, said Martin, as he ducked under a low pine branch. I am so glad you kept your cool back there when we were in the pit. I knew I had to keep it together. Having a meltdown then, or, or now, would have been, well, really bad. Martin smiled. There was that pioneer spirit again. But don't let the calm exterior fool you, she continued. A few times back there, I wanted to throw up. Martin stopped. Oh, that would have been beyond bad. I know, right? Talk about a trail to follow, and you were so worried about them seeing bent twigs. She smiled. That did Martin's heart good. 
humor proved that she was coping okay. Distance from the threat brought a huge sense of relief to both of them. When they could hear no other noises behind them, Martin thought it might be safe to stop, rest, and reorganize. Being quiet for a while would be good, too. They had come to a tumble-down stone wall, marching arrow-straight through the forest. It was one of those lost traces of the old days when the land was farmed. Cornfields and cow pastures, abandoned a hundred years ago, had grown back into forests. The lichen-covered stones were the only traces that remained of an agricultural past. Do you think we left too little trail to follow? I think so. Also working in our favor is that I don't think those two had the luxury of waiting and searching. I bet that when they realize how long it'll take to search, they'll opt to bail and run. I sure hope you're right. We'll have to keep an ear out. Susan gasped as Martin turned to face her. Your stomach! That guy cut you! I saw him cut you! Oh, my God, you must be hurt! She studied the gash in his jacket apprehensively, wanting to know, but not wanting to see. You're right, he did. In the rush to escape, Martin had forgotten that, too. He looked down at the gaping horizontal slash in his jacket. Not only was there no blood anywhere, he didn't feel any pain. Martin probed around the gash. He pulled out wads of newspaper, and then let out a laugh, quickly stifled. What? Susan was confused and a little annoyed. Slash victims are not supposed to laugh. My newspaper! Last night I wadded up pages and stuffed them in my jacket for extra insulation. Worked great, but I forgot I had them in there. <laughs> Looks like he nicked my flannel shirt a little, but not bad. It's mostly just my jacket. Zipper is shot now. Time to get out what's left of my duct tape. Oh, thank God you're not hurt. I thought he really cut you. I was so upset that I... She gasped and covered her mouth. I knocked that guy out. You did real good, Susan. Perfect timing. He took the carjacker's knife out of his pocket to see what his battlefield pickup prize might be. It was a generic folding blade, nothing fancy, but better than his multi-tool blade. I've never knocked out anyone before, she said, as if pleading to a judge. I never even hit anybody before. Well, that was a perfect time to start. You're quite the little fighter. Good thing I didn't leave you at La Quinta, huh? You'd have laid them all out. Oh, stop it. She frowned and leaned against a tree. Her face looked pensive as she tried to digest her newly discovered violent streak. Martin leaned against one of the larger stones such that he could peer back over the rubble. He started cleaning the mud off his jacket so the duct tape would stick. I thought they were going to find us for sure, Susan said. I was so scared. I know we were hidden in that hole, but why didn't you think they would find us? Well, I was thinking of the second shot rule. Huh? It's one of those old war wisdom things. A single shot in the woods alerts the enemy, but it's over too quickly. They can't tell where it came from. But once the enemy is alert and listening, it's the second shot that gives away your direction. I figured that if we stopped making sounds, they'd have no idea where we were. Ooh, said Susan. You were in the military? She sounded ready to be impressed. Martin hung his head a little. He had no braggable credentials, no tours of Afghanistan, no duty in Iraq, no ranger battalion. Who gathers around the bar to hear a software geek tell about his battle stories? There I was, searching every subroutine for this rogue conditional loop that was jeopardizing the success of our... No. Software is just about as un-Rambo as it gets. Uh, well, no. 
Well, then why would you know about the second shot thing? Martin gave her an embarrassed smile. Well, it uh, applies to hunting out a season, too. She frowned. But isn't that against the law? Well, technically, yeah. Then why would you do that? Her voice was hushed and sounded incredulous, as if she were interviewing a convicted felon. It was the strawberries, Martin said, in what he thought was a passable Humphrey Bogart impersonation. Strawberries? Martin took her blank look to mean that she was not a fan of the cane mutiny. He started to chuckle at his own wit, but his ribs hurt. He flinched and gasped. Oh, my, you are hurt, she said. Is it when you fell in that hole? He nodded. I'm a little sore is all. Nothing serious. I got this far, didn't I? True, but look at you. Jacket ripped and cut. You got mud all over your face and jacket. Here, let me get some water and help clean you up. She wet one of the paper McDonald's napkins that he was using on his jacket and handed it to him. He wiped the crusty mud from around his eyes and off his forehead. She gasped. Wait, that's not mud. It's blood. You've got a big cut on your forehead. Martin looked up as if he could see the cut. Really? I, I don't feel anything. She wiped the mud out of the cut with a wet napkin. Ow, ow, ow. Okay, okay, now I feel it. You can stop now. No, she said firmly. This needs to be cleaned up. Now sit still. She unzipped the front pocket of his backpack and pulled out his little first aid kit. It's my turn to play doctor. Martin was not going to get a lollipop for being a good patient. He squirmed, and several times he had his hands up by his face, trying to help. She swatted them away. At one point she stopped, hands on her hips. Did I wiggle this much when you put the bandage on my blister? Hmm? A chastened Martin sat very still. What did you mean? It was the strawberries, she asked while she applied the antibacterial ointment. Oh, sorry, that was an old movie reference. Humphrey Bogart plays the captain of a Navy ship during the war. He's going mentally unstable and his crew had to deal with it, sort of like a soft mutiny. Captain Quig got all paranoid and obsessed. The trigger was thinking that someone was stealing his frozen strawberries. There's more to the movie than that, of course. Great movie. My point was that sometimes I think I sound like Quig all obsessed about my strawberries. His first Bogart came off better than his second. His eyes narrowed as he remembered run-ins with his rodenty pests. Every now and then, the squirrels discover my strawberry bed. When they do, the little monsters can wipe out a whole year's produce in a week. I go all queeg on them. Squirrels have to eat, too. She took a bandage out of his wrapper. They can eat in the woods. I don't grow a garden to have fat squirrels. So you hunt them illegally? I didn't know squirrel hunting was illegal, or legal for that matter. Well, there is an official season, but I try to keep the local herd small. Too many of them, and they're all over my garden. I take them whenever I need to, regardless of season. It's on my own property, so not really anyone else's business. Still, I try to remember the second shot rule to avoid any upset neighbors calling the cops or whatever. There, you're all done she announced. Stop that. Don't touch it. Just leave it alone. Martin turned to look and listen for the carjackers. The woods were silent. I think they're gone. How can you be sure? she whispered. They weren't the quietest at moving through the woods. True. So I think we can get going again. He stood up and put on his backpack. The more distance we can put between us and them, the better. I'll take the wheels again. We can go a little slower this time. 
Okay, but which way? Good question, Martin thought. They ran into the woods, going no particular direction, often changing directions. The sky was evenly gray overcast, no sun for bearings. The trees had moss all the way around them, so the old Boy Scout adage was useless. Martin's map was a street map. It didn't show creeks or ponds or rock walls. He located the dead-end street that they had run up and traced a line into the large, featureless void. He knew they were near the New Hampshire border, but not much else. I think we're somewhere around here, he pointed to an empty area on the map. We sure don't want to go back the way we came. If we go up this way, we'll eventually meet this road over here. It leads up to another road. I know that road. Not the most direct route, but it'll work. Okay, but which way is that way? She looked around at the evenly distributed trees. Martin dug out his little button compass, a freebie from a trade show. He turned the map so the map north aligned with the red needle, then off a bit for the deviation. Looks like north-northeast will be the shortest path, which would be that way, he pointed. Avoiding thickets and denser stands of trees meant that their course was anything but a straight line. Martin tried to dead-reckon how much to compensate their heading for each deviation, but he knew that it was just guesswork. He took some comfort in knowing that they would have to come out to a road eventually. He was hoping for the shortest walk possible. You, you shoot squirrels? Susan asked. He was surprised she was still thinking about the squirrels. Yes. They trudged without words, ducking under low branches. Martin imagined that she was conjuring unpleasant images of bristling black guns, innocent-looking squirrels, and pink mist. Okay, maybe not the pink mist part. And he didn't use an assault rifle on them, nor were they innocent in Martin's mind. Sometimes they were more akin to a biblical plague. Nobody in the Bible ever said, Locusts have to eat, too. What do you do with them? she asked. Martin was about to answer, Well, I certainly don't hold little funerals for them. He knew that that was far too sarcastic. Squirrels tended to bring out his dark side. He didn't want her to think that he was a vicious killer type. He was already on the margins of civilized society by being a gun owner. He decided that he would try a kindler, gentler style. Well, let's just say they don't go to waste. Oh. After they negotiated a thicket of saplings, she asked, What does don't go to waste mean? Martin sighed. He didn't want to go there. We eat them. After the words left his mouth, he realized it was a poor time for brevity. His words sounded barbaric, like he bit into their dead furry bodies and ripped off a strip of red flesh with his teeth. What? Her shocked tone signaled that it did sound barbaric. I mean, I clean them, cleaning being a nicer word than butcher. And then we cook them. Not a lot of meat on a squirrel, but they taste okay. He glanced back. Susan had that swallowed bug expression. Oh, it's not that bad, he said. People have done that for thousands of years. Hunt for their prey, cook it over a fire. Martin stopped himself. He was painting a barbaric picture again. I know, I know, but I don't even like looking at the packages of meats in the cooler at the supermarket. Oh, you're a vegetarian? That spelled some future trouble. What food they had stored away had not been blessed by some vegan priest guru expert. It was just plain food. No, I like meat well enough. I'm just used to it being already diced up and in my meal. 
He was relieved to hear that she didn't have complicated diet restrictions, whether medical or ethical, but her phrase, already diced up, stuck in his mind. He wondered what that meant. So you prefer to buy things like ground turkey or hamburger? Oh, not so much that. I just don't cook much. This was a does-not-compute moment for Martin. People eat every day. How could they not cook? Margaret was always cooking something. Pumpkin bread, pies, soups, casseroles. Even her canned tomatoes or salsa were cooked by her before going into the canning jars. Martin liked to cook, too. His father always told him, If a guy's gonna eat, then a guy's gotta cook. It did prove a useful skill in his bachelor days. You mean you eat out a lot? Oh, not a lot. Only three times a week. It gets expensive. Three times a week? Martin felt like a hermit. He tried to think of the last time he and Margaret had gone out to eat. He couldn't come up with one. He wondered if the drive through at Dunkin' Donuts counted, but he thought not. Mostly, Susan continued, I just buy frozen meals, you know, Stouffer's Lean Cuisine. I usually get the store brand, though, less expensive. Oh, are those any good? He had not eaten a frozen meal since college. Margaret wouldn't abide them in her house. Oh, they're okay. A little salty sometimes, or bland, especially the low-fat ones. Still, couldn't be easier. Just pop it in the microwave, and there you go. That's how almost everybody does it in town. Hmm. Martin still had a hard time imagining that lifestyle. You mentioned the other day about wading through that last power outage. What did you eat while you couldn't use your microwave? Graham crackers, she said flatly. For two days? Martin paused to point at a mossy log. Oh, be careful of that log there. It's really rotten. Thanks. She stepped over the log. Technically, it was only a day and a half, but yes, they did get a little boring. I haven't been able to eat graham crackers ever since. I was so glad when the power came back on. But I had to throw out all my meals and buy new ones. You just threw them away? Oh, yeah, they were probably bad. They thawed out. Martin felt barbaric again. He would sniff some meat past its date from the back of the fridge, know that it was iffy, but cook it anyway. Was he just one rung up from eating roadkill? How charming was that? And why did it matter if he was charming or not? Sometimes the store would carry exotic meats like buffalo or mutton, but I never tried those. I'm good with plain old beef or chicken, sometimes fish. I don't think I could ever eat anything like squirrel. I wonder what all those people back in the city are doing now, Martin mused. If most of them shopped and ate like you, they'd be running out of things like graham crackers and stuff pretty soon. Yeah, kind of scary. But let's talk about something else, okay? This is making me realize how hungry I am. I'm regretting that I didn't buy that jar of olives back at Andrews. I don't really like olives, but even they sound pretty good about now. The trees thinned somewhat. The ground ahead of them was muddy and had more tussock sedge than leafy bushes. Martin stopped and set down the roller bag. Looks like we've come to a strip of swamp. The ground gets higher again on the other side, see? But I don't feel like mucking straight through here. So what do we do? Go around? Yep, no sense both of us walking back and forth looking for a way around. How about if you stay here with the bags and rest? Maybe on that fallen log over there. That looks dry. I'll go up this way and see if there's a way around. Martin pushed his way through the spindly brush for what he guessed was about thirty yards. He lost sight of Susan. 
The marsh was getting wider, not narrower. Another fifty yards ahead, there was open water, a pond. This was not the easy way around. Susan was watching nervously and eagerly when Martin emerged from the brush. "'Can't go that way,' he said. "'The swamp starts turning into a pond. "'I'll try going the other way next, after a bit of a rest. "'Didn't get that much sleep last night.' He sat on the log with the roller bag between himself and Susan. "'Um, Martin?' There was something in her um that sounded like trouble. "'Yeah?' "'I didn't get a chance to finish what I wanted to say this morning. "'This is about when I scared you, isn't it? "'Look!' I'm really sorry that I... Hold on, she interrupted. You didn't do anything. That's what I'm trying to apologize for. What? Why? Susan looked away sheepishly. For thinking that you... Well, I wouldn't. Martin did not want her to finish her sentence. He could feel a blush of embarrassment coming on. I know, and that's why I feel terrible. It was just something about the fall, I guess. I, I got scared. Well, these are scary times, Martin conceded. We've seen that. True, but it wasn't right. I know you're not like that. Not your fault. You couldn't really know. Five minutes a week through a teller window, a couple of days of chaos on the road, still plenty of room for reasonable doubt. Martin was trying to excuse her fears as reasonable, but wondered why he was trying to leave the door open, that he might be a terrible person. He needed to fire his lawyer. She glanced at him people skills, remember? There's a whole lot of guys out there that, well, a girl can tell that they would, you know, given half a chance, no matter how nice they talk, something in their eyes. She looked down and fidgeted with the buttons on her coat. But you... Martin could see the inner struggle played out across her face as she searched for words. Something inside him suddenly realized he did not want her to find those words. Things said in a flush of emotion usually went horribly wrong. Many times in the past he had said things too spontaneously, too candidly, and regretted it. All of those times he had wished that someone would have doused him with ice water, or set a trash can on fire, anything to distract him and derail his tongue. He had no ice water or trash cans, but he could change the subject for her. We'll just both have to be more careful, right? Her small smile told him that she appreciated the derailment. Yeah, that's it, more careful. With that in mind, Martin handed her the folding knife. You should carry this. Susan tried to decline, but Martin insisted. I've got the blade on my multi-tool. You should have something, too. We might run into more trouble. She reluctantly took the knife, a physical symbol of the brutality that had so quickly risen around them. It's hard to believe that people are acting this way, out there, I mean. They didn't act like this during the last big outage. Why is this time different? Martin had to think. What was the difference? Were people losing hope so quickly because they had connected the dots like Leo had? Did they sense that help would not be coming quickly? That normal would not soon return? Was it a sudden lack of law enforcement? After Katrina hit, people looted and committed crimes pretty quickly. It could be that law enforcement gets overwhelmed at times like these, and people are on their own. Being on your own is scary. Maybe it's just that bad people, who are always out there, feel like they can get away with things now, he offered. She frowned. With all the policemen piddling around the roadblocks, of course they can. Martin matched her frown. There wasn't much stopping those two carjackers. 
Who knows what they've already done and what they would have done if they caught us. Thank God we got away. This thought sent Martin down a dark rat hole. If he had not stuffed newspapers in his jacket, the thug might have killed him, then and there. Then Martin realized that would have left Susan alone with them. He felt a flash of fear, quickly followed by both rage and terror swelling up inside him. His rage surprised him. The Good Samaritan in the Bible felt compassion and concern for the wounded stranger, but not rage at the robbers. Was Martin even entitled to the emotion of rage? It was Susan's turn to derail deep thoughts. I got away okay, but you're not looking so good. She pointed to his muddy duct-tape jacket. He appreciated her interruption of his dark mood. It was kinder than ice water. He looked down at his jacket. Yeah, I seem to be kind of accident-prone lately. You said you were going to go look for a way around the swamp, right? She added brightly. Well, yes, I did. I'll wait here. She patted the log. Don't be gone too long, and try not to fall down so much, okay? He gave her a give-me-a-break eye roll, pulled out his invisible notepad, and pretended to write, Don't fall down. Got it. Like my new notepad? I like it. It's pink, she winked. The swamp tapered down to a muddy stream, roughly a dozen yards to the southeast. It took a bit of careful balancing on wobbly tussocks to get across. They traveled back up to the other side of the swamp until they spotted the log they had sat on. Okay, now we're back on course. North-northeast. Ready? Sure, I'm getting really hungry, though. Pushing through the woods had the same perpetual quality that walking on the railroad tracks had. There always seemed to be more trees ahead. Hey, look up there, Martin pointed through the tree trunks. That looks like a shed or a garage or something. Cool, that means we're almost near the road. They walked with more enthusiasm. Their ordeal in the woods was almost over. Hmm, this is more of a little barn, Martin said. I wonder what they keep in this little pen. Susan cupped her hands around her eyes as she peered through the dusty window. Rabbits. There's a bunch of cages of rabbits in there. Interesting. I wonder if they... Martin trailed off. He realized the owners were raising them for meat. He had already bungled that topic with squirrels, so he felt it was best to avoid round two. That must be the house up through there. The road is probably just on the other side. Martin welcomed Susan to New Hampshire, officially, with a deep theatrical bow. Somewhere back in the woods, they had crossed the line. Susan chatted about traveling, but never making it up to New Hampshire, as the two of them walked up the path from the rabbit barn to the house's backyard. "'Stop right there!' shouted a man's voice from the house. Martin and Susan looked up, startled. Stepping off the back porch was a stout little man with salt-and-pepper hair. He had a shotgun to his shoulder, one eye squinted, the open eye behind the bead. The gun was aimed at Martin's head.